Today you and I come to the ninth and final sermon in our series entitled The Supremacy of Christ. We've been walking through the Colossian letter and we find ourselves in the concluding paragraph of that powerful epistle. When we come to Colossians chapter 4, we find a list of names. There are some other letters that have a list of names. There's an extensive list in Romans. A few names are listed in 2 Timothy. And here we have a good number of names that are listed for us to read. If you're anything like me, the great temptation when you come to a list like this is just to skim through it or to skip over it completely. Why? Because the names are antiquated, and let's just be honest, they're hard to pronounce. So because of that, we sometimes just skip right through this last section, and we think to ourselves, well, praise the Lord, we've learned a lot in the previous three chapters. Yet this morning, I don't want us to skip through this last paragraph. I want us to study it, because I believe that in these last few verses, we will find a portrait, a biblical faithfulness. And if there's ever a time when you and I need a portrait of biblical faithfulness, it is in these days. It is not by accident that God has so ordained for this to happen and fall on Father's Day. Because what this world needs more than anything else, what our church needs, what the culture needs, we need some faithful dads. And so this message is not just for fathers. This message is for all of us who claim Christ as Lord. But this morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 4. I want to read verses 7 to 18 in your hearing. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Colossians chapter 4, I'll begin reading at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus who's also called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers in the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church at the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. Now I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains, and grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are over a hundred named individuals associated with the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts and the Epistles. In our letter, 
There are ten. In these ten names, we find at least three common characteristics of biblical faithfulness. First and foremost, biblical faithfulness portrays those present in spite of differences. Present in spite of differences. The word faithful implies that you are present. You cannot be faithful in church attendance and be absent. You can't be faithful as a teammate and never go to practice. You cannot be a faithful coworker and never show up to work. You cannot be faithful to your spouse and never meet the needs of your spouse. You can't be a faithful dad and never be at home. Faithfulness implies presence. You cannot be absent and faithful. So here, Paul gives us an example of faithfulness, and it is present in spite of differences. He gives at least two examples of this idea of being present. The first one is the very first name that's listed, Tychicus. I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody named Tychicus. In fact, I don't know anybody who knows anybody named Tychicus. Maybe his best friends just called him Ty. I don't know. But here the scripture calls him Tychicus. Not the only time that his name is mentioned in the New Testament. In fact, we find it on five occasions. On the majority of those five occasions, at least three of them, he has one particular task. This task is outlined uh, in Philemon. It's also outlined in Ephesians and here in Colossians. Tychicus is the mailman. He's the delivery boy. He is the one who carries the letter from Paul in his Roman imprisonment and takes it to the city of Colossae. This is Tychicus. He has one job. His job is to successfully deliver the letter to the church of the Colossian believers. Now keep in mind, this is before U.S. mail. It's before UPS. This is before even Amazon. I know it's hard to believe. But this is before all of those things. This man has one job. He's been given this sacred letter, been told to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles and make it safely to the Colossian church. Travel in those days was treacherous. It was also quite dangerous. He was putting his own life in his own hands. Really, he was putting his life in the hands of God. And he was saying, God, I need you to help me as I travel from point A to point B. Now, you know he made it successfully, don't you? The reason you know that he made it is because you are staring at the letter of the Colossians. If he had not made it, it would not be in our book. If he had not made it, it would not be counted as one of the 66 books of the Bible. But here it is. It is one of the sacred letters that's found and bound in your Holy Scripture. Why? Because Tychicus made it safely. He did his job. He took the letter and made it over to Colossae. Now, nobody in the Roman Empire would have seen the work of Tychicus as noble. I mean, he's just carrying a letter. That's it. A lot of people tried to do that. Some succeeded. Others failed. It's not a noble job. He's a mailman, for crying out loud. That's all he's doing. And yet, his work outlives the Roman Empire. His work of taking this letter safely and securely to the church and so that you and I are reading it some 2,000 years later. His work outlived the Roman Empire. 
His work will go into eternity. For it just might be that we are on heaven's shores and we gather around this sacred book and we study it and King Jesus gets to preach for us. And he tells us all the truth that's in it. It could be that you and I gather in holy worship on heaven's shores and we open to Colossians chapter 4 and King Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful Tychicus. Because you were given a task and you did it faithfully. Don't miss the point that greatness in the kingdom of God many times is seen in the obedience of small tasks. I don't know anything else really about Tychicus. I don't know if he sang to the millions. I don't know if he preached to the thousands upon thousands. I I don't know if he led a revolution of his generation. But what I do know is that he has changed countless, countless lives because he was faithful in this small task of taking this letter to the appropriate church. So dads, don't ever underestimate the power of your presence. Moms, don't ever underestimate the power of your presence. Students, don't ever underestimate the power of your presence. There is something powerful about a dad who is present in the church, a dad who is present in the house, a dad who is present every day, getting up, going to work, doing what needs to be done to provide for the family. There is something powerful about presence. And Paul says that this is a portrait of biblical faithfulness, present in spite of differences. Tychicus is the first one that we can mention. Aristarchus is the second one I would mention because Aristarchus is described as my fellow prisoner. Now this is faithful presence. Aristarchus uh, was beside Paul in jail. Really, he was beside him in much of his ministry and much of his journey. There were numerous times when Aristarchus could have bailed on Paul, but he doesn't. He is beside him even to the point of incarceration. He is beside him even in jail. He says, Paul, I so much believe in this gospel. I so much believe in what you're doing. I so much believe in you and the work that God is doing through you. I'll go to jail for you. I'll go to jail with you. Now, can I just ask a question? Look around the room. Would you go to jail for these people? No, really, look around. I mean, look around the room. Would you go to jail with these people? Would you go to jail for these people? This is faithfulness. This is presence. Paul says, this man has been with me. He is my fellow prisoner. He is in chains with me because he believes so much in the gospel that we proclaim. Look around. Would you go to jail with the people on your right and the people on your left, in front of you and behind you? Yet Paul says, this is biblical faithfulness. I told you that it is present in spite of differences. All you have to do is look up and down the list of those 10 names and you'll find some differences. Well, for starters, there's gender differences. The majority of them are men, I'll give you that. But he does identify Nympha. Nympha, that dear saint, was a member of the Colossian church. In fact, the church met in her house. She opened her home. She turned her living room into a sanctuary. She is praised because of her 
faithfulness. This tells us that both men and women are called of God to be faithful. Men and women. Not one gender over the other when it comes to faithfulness. When it comes to obedience to God in Christ Jesus, both men and women, and those are the only two genders, both men and women are called of God to be present, called of God to be faithful in the task, and greatness in the kingdom of God just might be accomplished by obedience in small tasks. You asked Nympha, what great thing did you do? And she said, all I did was open my house to the church. That's all I did. I just opened the front door and people came in. And yet Paul says she is greatly to be praised. So there are gender differences between male and female. There are also racial differences. Paul says that Articacus, John Mark, and Jesus Justice are the only three Jews who are doing this work in the kingdom of God. All the rest are Gentiles. Demas, and Luke, and Onesimus, just to name a few. We think that the difference between Jew and Gentile is nothing more than a religious distinction. No. It is a racial distinction. Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles and Jews, did not really get along. Paul is showing us that it is the gospel that unites people together of different races. The gospel breaks down every man-made barrier. And one of the man-made barriers that we have is racism in the sense of this race stays here, that race stays there. No, the gospel says every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every tribe will come together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and will proclaim he is the king of kings and he's the lord of lords so that when you bump into a brother or sister in christ one who has a different pigmentation of skin than you but when you come across a believer in christ you are closer to that person than you are to the lost sibling that gathers with you around the thanksgiving dinner table every year your connection is not blood that pulsates through your veins your connection is the precious blood of the lamb of god that covers over a multitude of sins so paul is showing us that it's the gospel that brings people together in spite of differences and sometimes the differences are racial it has long been said that the most segregated hour in american culture is 11 o'clock on sunday morning and tragically That's true. It ought not to be that way. Because the gospel that we proclaim unites people regardless of the race or ethnicity from which they come. You look through the list, there's also socioeconomic differences. Onesimus is a runaway slave who bumped into Paul, accepted Jesus Christ. Luke is a professional doctor. You can't get two men on more of the opposite ends of the spectrum financially, socioeconomically, than Onesimus and Luke. And yet both of them send greetings. Why? Because both of them are in the church. Both of them equal in the sight of God. 
Throughout the church's history, there have always been some people who had more means, financially speaking, than other individuals. doesn't make them better. Don't give them preferential treatment. It just means they've been blessed to be a blessing to the kingdom of God. So you got Luke, who's a doctor, probably a successful doctor. And you have Onesimus, who's a slave. He's a saved slave, but nonetheless, he's a servant. They're both in the kingdom of God. There's also uh, life experience differences. I mean, you look throughout that list, all 10 of those people, they have different life experiences. I'm just going to lift up one for the sake of time, just to prove my point. Paul brings to our attention this one named Mark. We call him John Mark. He's the cousin of Barnabas. He is the author of the second gospel. It bears his name, Mark. Do you know the story of John Mark? He was drafted by Paul to go on the first missionary journey. Somewhere along the way, um, he abandoned Paul and Barnabas. This didn't set very well with Paul. In fact, when it came time for the second missionary journey, Barnabas said, hey, let's take my cuz once again. Let's take my cousin, John Mark. And Paul said in so many sanctified words, over my dead body. I mean, he fooled me once. I'm not going to let him fool me twice. Scripture says in Acts that Paul and Barnabas came to a sharp disagreement. I don't know that they came to blows, but I do know they were toe-to-toe and nose-to-nose. They had a sharp disagreement. They probably raised their voices at each other. They had a sharp disagreement. You could feel it. What was the result? Barnabas took his cousin, John Mark, and went in one direction. Paul took another man by the name of Silas and went in another direction. And they went on the second missionary journey. By the time Paul writes the Colossian letter, 12 years have passed between that sharp disagreement and the reading of our text. 12 years. And in the 12-year span of time, somewhere along the way, John Mark and Paul reconciled because Paul says that John Mark uh, sends greetings. Uh, He's in the fold. He's with us once again. You get to 2 Timothy, which is the last book that Paul ever wrote, and at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, send John Mark. I need him. Paul's at the end of life, and who's he need? He needs that one who had years earlier abandoned him. Let me make a couple of statements, friends. In life, because of sin nature, people are going to disappoint you. And sometimes they'll disappoint you when you need them the most. Those that disappoint you when you need them the most may even be called family, friends, siblings, in Christ, brother, sister in the Lord. That moment that you need that person, that person just might abandon you, turn his or her back on you, stab you in the back. And it's hurtful and it's painful and it's hard to forget. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ always extends grace, not grudges. Don't let 
a failed past necessarily equate to a doomed future. Just because somebody was your John Mark in the past doesn't mean that God, by his grace, can't use that individual sometime in your future. You read this text, and some of you can identify as Paul. Others of you can identify as John Mark. Some of you can look into the eyes of a person across the sanctuary and you can see somebody who has betrayed you, disappointed you, disgusted you in the moment that you needed them the most. They bailed on you. And some of you can look across the sanctuary and by now it's been 12 years. Somewhere along the way, the grace of God has been cascaded upon you. And your relationship has been restored. Your relationship has been reconciled. That's the gospel. That's what the Lord can do. So just because you might have a John Mark in your life, just because you might have somebody who has betrayed you and disappointed you, don't equate that past failure to necessarily mean a doomed future. Because God just might use that person in your life once again, just like here. See, uh, this is a list of people, and they're present in spite of differences. Look around the room once again. You find different genders here, don't you? I mean, all of them that God made, male and female. Look around the room. You see some racial differences, don't you? I'll be the first to admit not nearly enough, but you do see some. You look around the room and you do do see some socioeconomic differences, don't you? There are some of you who have greater means than others of you, and that's good. It's needed in the kingdom of God here at First Baptist Pelham. You look around and Do any of us have different life experiences? (laughs) All of us do. Nobody has the same experience. Some of you may be like John Mark. Others of you may be like Paul. It may be flipped around. and It may be tossed around. You may be at at, at the beginning of it. You you may be towards the end of that 12-year time period. But, But you have different life experiences. It spans the spectrum as you look from the left to the right to the front to the back of the sanctuary. And what Paul is lifting up, we we see here in the family of God. And Paul is saying to us that biblical faithfulness portrays those who are present in spite of differences. We don't all have to think alike on everything all the time to be united in biblical faithfulness. Biblical faithfulness, present in spite of differences. There's a second common characteristic. Biblical faithfulness portrays those prayerful in spite of difficulty. The example I'll lift for you is in verse 12, the man named Epaphras. This is not the first time that we've heard the name Epaphras. In fact, his name is mentioned in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says he is one of you, which means he's a member of that congregation. Most of us believe he is the pastor of that congregation. He is a faithful servant. 
He is probably the pastor. He had traveled all those hundreds and hundreds of miles because he needed the advice of Paul. He knew that there was something that had gone awry in the church. There was some false teaching that had tried to infiltrate the church. They were trying to say that Jesus wasn't sufficient for salvation, that he is one of the pleroma of God, but not the uh, ultimate full pleroma of God, and, and that they were trying to teach something bigger, better than Jesus Christ. And Epaphras, he didn't quite know what it was. You and I have identified this as Gnosticism. He didn't quite know exactly what it was, but the pastor needed a pastor. Let me let you know a little secret. The pastor always needs a pastor. Everybody needs a pastor. Whether you know it or not, you need a pastor. Everybody needs a pastor, and even the pastor needs a pastor. So Epaphras goes to his mentor. He goes to maybe his father in the ministry, perhaps, at least a big brother in the ministry. He goes to Paul. He says, Paul, let me tell you what's going on in the church. I just need your advice. I need your help. I need your instruction. The result is the letter that you hold in your hand. So Paul writes this letter that speaks about the supremacy of Jesus. You know, Jesus plus nothing equals everything that we need. He, he writes this letter in response to the problems that Epaphras told him about. Apparently, Epaphras was going to stay with Paul a little bit longer than Tychicus. The letter was given to Tychicus to be taken on to the church, to the Colossian believers. And maybe Epaphras stayed just a little bit longer to fellowship, to minister to Paul as he was there in chains. What does Paul say about Epaphras? Well, he says he's a hard worker. Which, let me also tell you, uh, every pastor wants to be known as a hard worker. I mean, the Achilles heel of a minister is to be labeled lazy. You label a minister lazy, he's out for the count. I mean, nobody wants to be called lazy. This pastor, Epaphras, he's a hard worker. I want to lift up one phrase that Paul says about Epaphras. He said, Epaphras wrestles in prayer for you. Epaphras wrestles in prayer for you. The word wrestle is the Greek word from which you get the English word agonize. In fact, in Greek, it sounds a lot like that. It's to agonize. It's the portrait of an athlete who is struggling and straining and sweating his way to the finish line. Agonize. And Paul says, this is how Epaphras prays. He prays like somebody who is wrestling. He prays like somebody who is agonizing. He prays like someone who is struggling and straining and sweating for you. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you broke a sweat in prayer? I mean, when was the last time you got done praying and sweat was pouring down your face? Because of all the energy, all the effort, all the struggle that you were having in, in a spiritual warfare as you were agonizing over somebody. When was the last time you broke a sweat in prayer? If I can be confessional, apparently I'm a cool cat when I pray. Because I really can't remember the last time I broke a sweat in prayer. Yet Epaphras is agonizing, struggling, 
straining, sweating. He says he is wrestling in prayer for you. It's one thing to wrestle with the Colossians. It's something else to wrestle for the Colossians. It's one thing to fight with somebody. It's another thing to fight for somebody. Paul says Epaphras is fighting for you in prayer. He is agonizing in prayer for you. He's not fighting against you. He's not fighting with you. He is fighting for you. Can I ask you another question? When was the last time you fought for somebody in prayer? When was the last time that you agonized and you were fighting for your spouse? You're fighting for your children in prayer. You're fighting for your marriage in prayer. You're fighting for your holiness in prayer. You're fighting for your culture in prayer. You're fighting for your country in prayer. You're fighting for your church in prayer. You're fighting for yourself in prayer. When was the last time you were fighting for someone in prayer? If you are fighting for them, don't stop. Keep on fighting for them in prayer. The greatest weapon in your arsenal is prayer. We say that as if it's cute and trite to place on some type of magnet that we can put on our refrigerator. No, listen, it's not just a trite statement. It's a true statement. The greatest weapon in your arsenal is prayer. And you, like Epaphras, you can wrestle and agonize in prayer for someone that you desperately love. Maybe you're fighting for their salvation. You're fighting for their healing. You're fighting for their health but you're fighting for them. There's more than a few of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what it is to agonize, to wrestle, struggle and strain, sweat in fact, for someone else. Epaphras was prayerful in spite of the difficulties. I guess Epaphras could have thrown in the towel, he could have quit, he could have said, hey, this is far more Difficult than I ever anticipated. I really didn't know I was signing up for this when I signed up for this. He could have walked away, but he didn't. Instead of walking away, he was driven to his knees in prayer. And he prayed for the Colossian believers. Biblical faithfulness portrays those prayerful in spite of Difficulties. There's a third characteristic that biblical faithfulness portrays those persistent in spite of disappointment. Persistent in spite of disappointment. I'm going to give you a negative example from this list. I'm going to give you a positive example from this list. Then I'm going to give you the ultimate example that could come from this list. The negative example is given to us by the man named Demas. You know a dude named Demas is in trouble from the start. We don't name our sons Demas, nor should we. It sounds demonic, does it not? Oh, here's little Demas. I mean, 
We don't name our boys Demas. We stopped doing that thousands of years ago. So don't start it now. <laughs> don't pick it back up. Demas. Now, Demas, uh, he's found here in Colossians. He's also found in uh, Philemon. His name is also referenced in 2 Timothy. Now, I've already told you 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote. And in 2 Timothy, he says of Demas, Demas has deserted me because of his love for the world. Now here, Demas sends greetings. So he's still with Paul here in Colossians. He's with Paul. He's for Paul. He's beside Paul. He says, hey, by the way, put my name in there. I'll send them greetings as well. So he wrote, Demas sends greetings too. But when you get to 2 Timothy, Demas is nowhere to be found. He didn't persevere. Why didn't he persevere? Because of his love for the world. His love for the world was greater than his love for God. His love for the culture was more attractive than his love for Christ. The world's system is always a godless system. It doesn't matter what generation you live in. It doesn't matter what nation you come from. The world system is a godless system. The world's system attempts to put man in the place of God. And sometimes that system attempts to place you in the role of God, but you are a pathetic God. Please don't take any offense to that. You weren't designed to be God. You were designed to be a servant of God. You were designed to know God and make him known. You were designed to be under God's authority. But the world system is always a godless system. So Demas, by the time Paul gets to the end of his life, Demas is more in love with the world system than with God's biblical system. So by the time you get to 2 Timothy, Demas is nowhere to be found. I don't know how long it had been, but for some stretch of time, he abandoned Paul with, with no prospect of a return. Like John Mark, Demas abandoned Paul. But unlike John Mark, Demas never repented and returned. One of the marks of a genuine believer is the perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere. That's a promise of Scripture. By their perseverance, it will give evidence that they are the saints. So they will persevere because God will give them the power to persevere. And when you see their perseverance, it's evidence that they really are the saints of God. Demas abandoned not only Paul, but also the biblical system in favor of the world. i got to be honest with you, this is the heartbreak of ministry. Because every minister who's been in this very long, every church member who's been in this very long, they've seen the people. I mean, the names and faces are now coming to your minds. People who, you know, at one time they were fully invested. 
They were, they were here. They were serving. They were ministering. They were present. They were prayerful. It looked as if they were persevering. Oh, but, but because of the love of the world, they haven't darkened the door of the church in decades. They have nothing to do with God. In fact, it's the opposite. I mean, if you look at their Facebook and their Instagram, you ain't judging nobody. You're just examining fruit. And you look at that, and it, it, it looks as if they even say it, that they have no regard for God. By their lips, by their lifestyle, by their walk, by their talk, no regard for God. No prospect of coming back. Friends, this, this is the heartbreak of ministry. And Paul um, in 2 Timothy would tell you, don't be Demas. It's not just don't name your sons Demas, but don't be Demas. Don't love the world more than you love the creator of the world. That's the negative example. I got a positive example, though. It comes towards the end of the passage. The young man's name is Archippus. Archippus just needed some encouragement. Encouragement to complete the work he received from the Lord. Archippus probably was a young minister, young pastor. Archippus, according to Philemon, was the son of Philemon. And Archippus just needed to be reminded, you're going to persevere. You're going to finish to the very end because you belong to God in Christ. I wonder if there's anybody here who just needs a word of encouragement today. For me to tell you, don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. Don't give up on God. Don't turn your back on the Lord. I know you look at the culture. It looks like the culture is winning, but don't take your cues from the culture. Look to the scripture. You know that Christ is victorious. There are more than a few of you who just might come into church and you hang on to your faith by your fingernails. You wonder, am I going to be able to make it Sunday to Sunday? Am I going to be able to make it tomorrow? And you're clinging and clutching to a faith and you think to yourself, it's as small as a mustard seed. And Jesus says, that's enough. Because the faith as small as a mustard seed can say to this mountain, be removed, and it will. Archippus just needed a little bit of encouragement. Tell him to complete the work he received from the Lord. It's not his idea. He didn't come up with it. It's not his brainchild. Listen, it is from Christ. It is from God Almighty. It's from the Lord. So he will persevere. You just encourage him. And I wonder this morning if any of you look in the mirror of the Scripture and what reflects you is Archippus. There may have been some of you woke up this morning and said, you know what? I think I'm feeling like Archippus today. Of course, this morning when you woke up, you never heard the name Archippus until you came in here. But maybe that's who you are. You're somebody, and look, you've received salvation from God in Christ. You've received a word from the Lord. You've received a work from God. And, and you're wondering, am I going to be able to persevere? Am I going to be able to hold on and hang on to the very end? And I, like Paul, I'm simply telling you, yes, you can. By God's grace and by God's power, you will persevere because the saints persevere until the end. It's a promise from God and it's evidence of their salvation. I told you there was a negative example of perseverance. That's Demas. I told you a positive example of perseverance. That's Archippus. Then I told you there's an ultimate example. Because the ultimate example and not only of perseverance but all of this, presence and prayer, 
is found in one and one alone. And some of you have a holy hunch where I'm going. You got a sneaking suspicion what's about to happen. You know I'm going to talk about Jesus. Because Jesus, present, he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, prayerful. When was the last time Jesus sweat for you in prayer? I can tell you there was one time that Jesus sweat for you in prayer. He was there kneeling in the garden. He was praying, and he prayed so earnestly with so much agony that Dr. Luke tells us that it was sweat that began to beat up on his forehead, and he began to sweat drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus agonized over you in prayer. He agonized for your salvation. You were on his mind and he was sweating over you. He said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Father, not my will, but your will be done. And three times he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He was furrowing faithfulness into his spirit. Why? Because you, beloved, were on his mind. He was driven to his knees in prayer. He rose in confidence and victory. He walked out and he went to Calvary's cross because he was prayerful in spite of the difficulty. And this Jesus, this Jesus persevered to the very end. He persevered as he hung precariously on a cross made of wood, tingling between two thieves. Jesus persevered as they hurled insults upon him, as those that passed by said, he saved others, why can't he save himself? If he is the Christ, let him come down off that cross. And Jesus persevered, persevered to the point of declaring to Telestai, it is finished. What is finished? The payment for your sin is paid in full. It is finished. Jesus got her done. Jesus completed the task that the Father had sent him to do. He said to Telestai, it is finished. He persevered to the very end. He bowed his head, gave up his ghost. They took his dead body off the cross. They placed him into a borrow grave, rolled a massive stone in front of it. He stayed there for the rest of Friday, all day Saturday, even into the hours of Sunday. But early on on Sunday morning, Jesus, who persevered, burst forth from the tomb, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And Jesus is alive today. Because as Paul is coming to the end of this passage, he's just telling us, remember Jesus. If you want a biblical portrait of faithfulness, Yes, it is presence in spite of differences. It is prayer in spite of difficulties. It is perseverance in spite of disappointment. It is Jesus. Remember what Paul said in Colossians? That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the firstborn of the resurrection, first in rank, first in responsibility and priority. He is the firstborn of resurrection. And God was so pleased with Jesus that all of God's fullness dwells in him.
Here's the great mystery of the cosmos. This Christ in you, the hope of glory. This one who is ever-present. This one who is always prayerful even to the point of sweating for your salvation. This one who perseveres to the very end and through the very end. This one named Christ can be in you, the hope of glory. That's why we've said all throughout this nine-part study, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I don't know the problem. I don't know the prognosis. I don't know the predicament that keeps you up at night. I don't know your sickness. I don't know your sadness. I don't know the setback that causes you to wring your hands and worry. But what I do know is regardless of that problem or regardless of that person, regardless of that scenario, Jesus can fix it. Jesus has it in the palm of his hands. You say, preacher, you're just saying that because you're supposed to say that. You're just saying that because that's what we pay you to say. No, I'm telling you this because it's true. You don't have to pay me a dime to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is true. I stand to tell you this, not because I have to, but because I'm compelled to by Christ. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's not only that Jesus is prominent, he's preeminent. It's not only that Jesus is sufficient, he is sovereign. So I'm about to take my seat, but I can just simply tell you, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock. I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. I said all of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. In Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. If you are in Christ, you've got everything that you need. Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you'll ever need in this life and the life to come. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, today can be the day of your salvation. I just simply ask you to admit to God that you are a sinner. You are not perfect and you make mistakes. And the world system is leaving you with a lot of disappointment and heartache. You are not God. And you've come to that conclusion by his grace. And today, if you just admit to God that you're a sinner, you believe that he went to the tree taking all of your sin, past, present, and future. It was nailed there, left there. He paid the price that you don't have to pay. If you confess that he is your king, he is your Lord, he calls the shots. You arrange yourself under him. Today can be the day of your salvation. All you have to do, we're going to sing a song as soon as the first note is struck. I want you to come down and take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need that Jesus in my life. I want to be saved today. Maybe you are saved already. You've settled that a long time ago. But today you've realized, you know what? I'm more absent than present in this arena or that arena of life. I'm not as prayerful as I need to be. I can't remember the last time I sweat for someone in prayer. Or maybe you're just here today and you say, you know, I'm a believer, but I sure need help to persevere. I want you to know the altar's open. You can come and pray. 
Cast all your cares upon the one who cares so very much for you. I know you can pray in your seat. It's just as fine there, but sometimes it helps me just to get to a different spot, different place, different posture, just to kneel in prayer. The altar's open, friend. You come. You pray. Maybe there's somebody here, and God is calling you to the mission field. God is calling you to preach. God is calling you to be a full-time minister of the gospel. Let that be known today. Whatever it is that God is either shouting in your spirit or whispering into your soul, be obedient unto him right now. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. For the lost, we ask for you to save them. Bring them unto yourself. For those who are saved, we ask for you to uh, draw us close to your precious bleeding side. Lord, we need you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.